Welcome to Shorewords, the ASPN podcast of coastal literature, the factual and fictional accounts that transport us toward the shore. I'm Leslie Ewing, host of Shorewords, and in each of these episodes, I talk with authors about their coastal writing and with coastal leaders about the tales and stories that have inspired their chosen path. Today is my great pleasure to be talking with Kim McCoy, author of the third edition of Waves of Beaches. But before we talk with Kim, I'd like to take a pause and have some time for our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at CoastalNewsToday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at Chloe at CoastalNewsToday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at CoastalNewsToday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. So, Kim, Waves and Beaches is an iconic book for so many of us, and you've done a wonderful third edition of it. Many people know you already, for sure, but can you tell folks a little bit about yourself and what inspired you to do this revision of Waves and Beaches? Well, it really started back in the late 90s when I had, when I had the pleasure to meet uh, Willard Bascom. I'd used the first edition of Waves and Beaches uh, when I was in graduate school. And I went to a, <laughs> a meeting, a little meeting, the Deep Submersible Pilots Association. And um, Willard Bascom was speaking about uh, gold from the wreck of the brother Jonathan. And we became friends. And uh, in 2020, um, sorry, in, in the year 2000, uh, Willard managed to get the rights back from Doubleday. And he had been working on a little bit, and I had been obviously aware of Willard Bascom for a couple of decades at that point. And he was starting to do a third edition. And right after getting the rights back, unfortunately, he was hit by a car and died a couple months later. And that put everything on hold, and it hardly been started. And, but it really started a long time before that. Um, well, Leslie, do you want a little bit of deeper history on Willard? On both of you, but let's go with Willard first, age before beauty. <laughs> well, my interactions actually unknowingly started a long time ago. Uh, we, ha- we shared a common past uh, geographically. So Willard Bascom hung out on the Monterey Peninsula, and he knew Doc Ricketts, and John Steinbeck was actually a good friend of Willard Bascom's. So there was this um, entourage of people that merged intellects and the shoreline, and Doc Ricketts, of course, dealt with the, the sea life, and, and Bascom dealt with the, I'll call it geological aspects. And, and Doc Ricketts was actually credited by many for his intellectual backbone for Steinbeck's writings. Um, you know, and so that core of of interactions in the late 40s actually was in the same place where I lived. I, I was living on the Monterey Peninsula when I went to high school. And I found out later that I had actually lived on the same street as Bascom had lived, just by complete coincidence. So this became a very rich history for me. And then I went off to university, went to university in Germany and France, and uh, lived in Italy for five years. And then the opportunity was presented to me by Anitra Bascom, Willard's daughter, um, to continue the work on the third edition. And I said, that's a wonderful opportunity. And so that's how the third edition came about. I guess in general, one might characterize the first edition as a, a primer for engineers, coastal scientists, and researchers into the, the general phenomena of waves and beaches and their interaction. The second one expands on that some, adds to it. How would you characterize the third edition? What do you think you added to that to make it 
yet a new version of talking about waves and beaches for the 21st century? Well, in a nutshell, every sentence and every word was reviewed to see if it was a historical vantage point that Bascom had that was still pertinent in the 21st century and what things were really a little bit antiquated, you know, talking about sailing techniques in the 18th century, um, which were important, but there are plenty of other books that have been written about that. So I added a thread of, I expanded the view of the coastline, really a view of the of our world from the coastline into watersheds that dealt with dams, rivers, and deltas. And I, so that's inland. And I expanded seaward by looking at the massive amount of commerce that is now active at seas, uh, at sea. I think it's 90% of all goods travel in some form on this, on water. And with a container being the method of transport for goods globally, now the significance of how our commerce interacts with waves has become much more important. You know, every ship has to go from port A to port B and encounters thousands of waves during the voyage. And not um, respecting that interaction of commerce with waves, I felt was um, not something that should be overlooked. Additionally, I added pipelines and cables because much of our uh, energy resources and information resources come through submarine pipelines and cables, fiber optics. There's roughly a million miles of fiber optic cable underwater. And so the energy resources that come through hydrocarbon, that's gas and oil, um, these pipelines connect industries, oil fields, and they eventually come right to us with the, the light that comes out of our lights when we flip that switch. It's all coming to us on this vast array of infrastructure that is intimately connected with the sea. I, I think those of us who live along the coast are very much aware of how there's, there's not a, a, a hard divide between the water, the ocean, and the land structure and the land needs and opportunities. And certainly Sebastian Unger with The Perfect Wave got us thinking more about um, just we are not in the 20th or 21st century. We have not conquered the ocean by any means. And there's still these massive storms that will come up and um, do great damage to ships or in that story certainly caused ships to go down. But one of the things you mentioned in the book, and I believe it was even before as well, but the number of cargo ships, the number of large ships that go down each year, and we feel like there's these huger and more enormous ships. I mean, we've got the the Panamax and the, the largest ships now going around the world are, are just vast, and yet there are still no match for the waves, and, and we have to recognize that. You do a great job of explaining the sort of wave impacts on ships and ship motion. So I think that's a, a real important thing for us to recognize, that what we have learned for, through the years is still an important thing to continue to remember. And the, um, the shipping part and the movement is an important aspect to have included. So thank you for that. Uh, chapter 12 uh, is entitled Man Against the Sea, and it deals with how humans attempt, in many cases, and sometimes are very successful, how, how they try to interact with the ocean. And it's probably beyond even the, the most seafaring kind of person to do the nerd kind of thing that I did is, gee, when you spend, if a ship spends a year at sea, how many waves is that? Let's just say it's a 10 second wave. So every 10 seconds, a vessel is, if it's going into the wave, it is reduced in speed, mass increase in drag forces. And then as it goes underneath the, wave, underneath the ship, um, it creates more 
force in the center of the ship, which actually causes the bow and the stern, the front and the back of the ship, to actually bend downward. And then um, that's the ship in the center. They call it hogging. It bends up like the back of a hog. And then, so it's flexing not only up and down, but it's slowing down and then speeding up and slowing down and speeding up every single wave, every 10 seconds generically for the entire voyage. And so ships have to withstand not only the normal waves, but they also have to withstand the storm waves, you know, these uh, rogue waves that they speak of. Sebastian Junger, um, as a matter of fact, Sebastian Junger, uh, actually quotes Willard Bascom in The Perfect Storm. Uh, he requested uh, a little um, paragraph, and he includes that in The Perfect Storm. But anyway, in extreme waves, the vessels need to be created to withstand the great waves. Now, with climate change, so what's occurring is the, and this is in data, the wind speeds are getting greater statistically, which means what creates the waves is the wind. The wind increases in speed. You have larger waves statistically. So what we designed for, let's say a ship has an operational lifetime of 20 to 50 years, something like that. Well, if we go through an even more rapid change in wind speeds, the structural designs of many of these vessels might be inadequate to withstand those millions of waves that they encounter during the lifetime. So there's what's called uh, structural fatigue, you know, when something's flexed back and forth. So although we live on land, most people get their goods through a sea conduit. We're completely oblivious to what's going on. However, nature doesn't care what we understand. <laughs> It's going to do its, its method, whether it's rising sea level or increased winds, larger waves, or rogue waves. So, or, or even the pipelines that go in. You know, pipelines get ripped out by ships that drag their anchor. Or fiber optic cables are always broken. And the, the um, recent volcanic eruption in the South Pacific, in Fiji, I think it was Fiji, um, uh, the submarine earthquake, if you will, uh, took out one of their two major fiber optic cables. That was a wave that took it out. The wave that struck Fukushima in 2011 took out the nuclear power plant, and that changed the way that we look at energy resources. The Japanese changed their policy towards nuclear reactors, and so did the Germans. So these long-reaching effects of the destruction of extreme waves or tsunamis, they reverberate, in this case, for over a decade. So it's, it's subtle. Um, it's uh, not trying to be alarmist in the least, but you can't neglect it. It's a low probability, but not a zero probability that these things will happen. That's so true. And we're, we're finding those zero probability events are happening to... Um, they're not happening more and more, as you point out in the book as well about catastrophes that uh, probably a lot of natural events are occurring or have been historically occurring on a kind of constant trend, but it's just the, the building patterns that we have have put things in their way so that we're noticing them a lot more. And then as you point out that we're likely to see them not only occur at the frequency they have occurred, but, but somewhat go up in, in concern. And so you, the book does a very nice job of, of weaving together that idea that we're working within a natural system and need to be recognizing the changes that are happening there. In Chapter 11, um, there's a subsection of dams, rivers, and deltas. An amazing number is roughly 25% of all river sediments no longer reach the coastline because there are dams and and restrictions so jetties and and um, little levees that change the flow of water and hence change the movement of sediments 25 percent of the world's sediments it's massive change and each grain of sand that doesn't reach 
the beach is in essence a degradation to the ability of that beach to protect the structures that have been permitted in low-lying areas. So um, there's a little vignette in the book called Pitfalls of Coastal Development where I outline, well, you know, municipalities love to issue permits and, you know, there's revenues and jobs and people get new houses and all that sort of stuff. But unfortunately, some of the permitting is really not looking at the high probability of what is occurring very slowly in time. So an erosional process can be slowly occurring, meaning a little bit each day, or it can be episodic, which is a big storm will come through. And you might have wonderful weather for five years, 10 years, and then you get a 50-year storm or a 100-year storm, and it wipes out the entire coastline. Well, unfortunately, um, in 1900, the ability to forecast storms was very poor and resulted in the death of thousands of people. Today, we have much better weather prediction despite what we might think about weather people. Um, and so warning is much better. So the, the death, you know, the level of people, the percentage of people dying is much lower than it used to be. However, the destruction to the infrastructure is higher, partially because we've permitted a lot of things in the coastal zone. So the event in Galveston basically removed the entire city from existence. There's some, for listeners, just look up the images of Galveston storm in, in 1900. It's amazing. Whereas in New York, uh, during Sandy, the physical infrastructure was flooded, but the actual buildings didn't disappear. However, down in Florida, uh, in Miami, for instance, I think they're spending about $500 million on levees and pumps. And that is because Florida is basically a big sand spit with some underlying uh, uh, old reefs, so calcium carbonate underneath, which makes it solid. But the sand is very movable, and great storms can inundate far inland. So when you have a historical three-foot storm surge is occurring once every year, let's say. Well, when, what happens when you have a 20-foot storm surge? Um, the infrastructure is completely incapable of taking those changes. And so countries, as, as an example, in the Netherlands, the Dutch have done a fantastic project at shore protection with their Delta Works project. And they take a national approach to how are they going to protect the infrastructure and lives of people that can possibly be inundated in a storm surge or an extreme event. We don't have a national policy. We need one. We need to certainly look in our own backyards and implement those. Those are perhaps the easiest things to do, but it would be a wonderful thing if the country, the U.S. as a solid entities, so, so to say, could approach what the Dutch have done with the Delta Works and view our East Coast, our Gulf Coast, and our West Coast as infrastructure that not only needs to be protected for the lives of the people there, but also for the commerce that comes and goes. Because commerce disappears, and you know what? People disappear. So the, there are many examples of these around the world. The city of Jakarta is being relocated, so they have funds set apart because uh, they have what's called saltwater intrusion, and they're pumping out fresh water, um, and hence the local sea level is increasing, and at a rate that they've decided that they can't actually fight against this rising sea in Indonesia. But they've taken a national policy, so they go, okay, you know, this is too expensive to maintain as we are, but we will relocate the city. That's a pretty big thing. Could you imagine if suddenly someone said, oh, you know, why don't we just relocate Washington, D.C.? They'd probably think about it twice. <laughs> 
there there be there be lots of opinions on that certainly but yeah trying to relocate what we have today people find very daunting but also trying to protect what we have today is a it's a a challenge we have in the 21st century and the um the specter of sea level rise and climate change as you've identified as being one of those large waves in which we are are addressing right now is is making that um the time when we've got decli- maybe not declining infrastructure, but we've got infrastructure that is aging and needing to be protected or replaced. It's it's challenging on both sides of that equation. Um, you've also talked some about plastics and where they come into the picture and what part of a wave they represent for us. Well, you, you spoke about sea level rise and how I describe it as a very slowly rising wave. We don't know the size, the amplitude of this wave, uh, but it is rising, and it takes a very long time. It's happening so slowly that you can't really notice it in a normal lifetime. And another wave that's occurring is the wave of plastic. There's plastics being produced for all sorts of purposes, and unfortunately, most plastics find their way into the dumps and refuse piles of the world and water carries it away the density of plastic these polyethylenes and other plastics used in food packaging and clothing packaging very low density so it almost floats and many of it many types of plastics do float so whenever there's a storm surge whenever there's a large rain upstream so in the watershed even hundreds of miles upstream you get a big dump in the rain and it just flushes everything down and it goes into the sea. And we keep producing more and more plastics in a strange twist. You know, the fracking process that's going on is it has produced a lot of uh, gas, so natural so, uh, hydrocarbons, that in their overabundance, they actually can be applied to other products. And some of those are plastics. So there's a lot of investment going on around the world, including in the U.S., to utilize that natural gas for producing plastics. So we have a wave of plastics not only coming down the watershed, but we also have a a rising tide of plastics coming out of the hydrocarbon industry. So it's it's not a trivial um, problem. And, you know, it's one thing to just be on the shoreline and unsightly, but when it works itself into the ecosystem as it has, we don't even understand the repercussions of it in the ecosystem. There are studies, I'm not a biologist, but there are studies about reproductive rates dropping with the exposure to plastics and other hydrocarbons. So it's, I mean, also not just hydrocarbons, all sorts of man-made pieces of um, chemistry, if you will. And we don't know what it's happening, but we're producing millions of tons of plastics. And unfortunately, the liquid part of this earth, which is 70% of the surface area roughly, is the recipient of most of those plastics. Some of it goes into the recycle bin and unfortunately it doesn't really get recycled, most of it. But there are millions and millions of tons of plastics working its way into our ecosystem in ways that we have no deep understanding of it. And, and I think that some people are starting to get that picture. They're starting to understand that um, things drain to the ocean and, and are, show up there. Beach cleanup has been one of the largest um, public, not public, but volunteer projects around the world to do beach cleanup. And a lot of storm drains far inland have notes saying, you know, don't toss it, drains to the bay type of messaging. And I think perhaps one of the reasons, you can you can uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the reasons Patagonia was so interested in doing this book is that it pulls together not only the classic understanding of waves and dynamics that are so important for surfing, but it also pulls together a lot of the environmental components that are important for the oceans, like plastics. How did you get Patagonia involved in this book? Well, Patagonia, I felt, was an ideal partner 
for publishing Waves and Beaches. As most people know, they have a very strong environmental awareness, very active in the environmental world. And Waves and Beaches has a very strong awareness of the environment. Many times, in, several times in Waves and Beaches, it states, go and see. Well, it's go and look at the environment and see what's going on. And Patagonia has a very broad reach in its environmental actions, the South America, North America, Central America, you know, European, Asian. So they really have a very broad reach in their environmental awareness. Now, I was approached a couple of times by entities that wanted to turn Waves and Beaches more into a coffee table book, and I certainly didn't consider that very long. Patagonia was an ideal connection, and that came out of a... Um, an article written in Surfer's Journal by Steve Barilotti. And Steve knew the people at Patagonia and suggested to me that perhaps we'd float the, the project to Patagonia. And it was through Steve Barilotti, um, who's a writer down in Southern California, and the Surfer Journal's article. And um, a letter was written and directly uh, provided to Yvon Chouinard, the founder of Waves, uh, excuse me, directly presented to Yvon Chouinard, the founder of Patagonia, and apparently he's the person that signed off on it directly. So he had read the first edition of Waves and Beaches, as many people that work at Patagonia have, and it just seemed like a wonderful uh, merging of interests uh, along the environmental and coastal awareness avenues. That's a great, great reason to be putting books out like this. And while you said you did not want to turn it into a coffee table book, some of the photographs are great, great examples of, of situations and different wave conditions, different beach conditions. They're wonderful examples, but they're also wonderful pictures. So you look at these pictures and you go, oh my God, I've got to read about it because they're so amazing. They're great. So it does do a great job, to my mind, of combining both that great information, but also a number of different ways to access that information, either by just looking at the pictures and reading the captions, or by looking at the pictures going, I want to dive into this more and doing that. The photo editor was uh, uh, Jane Sievert. She did an excellent job at selecting beautiful, beautiful images. I contributed quite a few from my array of photographs around the world. It was presented in, it merges with the text very well, all the, the photos and also the drawings, merges with the text. And I spent a lot of time writing the captions so that the text merges with the captions, which merge then with the beautiful photography in the book. It, it all comes together very nicely. One of the things I was going to also say that I think comes together very nicely is that what many of us liked in the the first and second editions of Waves and Beaches was the way that Bascom would bring us into the situation. He went to so many beaches, he was involved with so many different projects, and was very good at writing from the first person of seeing this, observing these beaches, posing these questions to himself, and then getting answers or coming up with theories and, and hypotheses. But you have a sense that you're there with him oftentimes when you're reading the book. And I think what you've done very nicely is added your own first-person stories and accounts throughout that both bring you in as an author and show your your ethic and your consideration, not ethic, but your, your um, eye for the coast and your observing abilities, um, especially the story that you wrote about your your cave diving in Tintello. Um, want, want to recount that for folks just as in a fun experience? In Tinetto, in Italy. Tinetto, sorry. Yeah. Um, let me um, add a little bit to your comment about Bascom's uh, first, you know, the first person. That was one of the most difficult things in doing the third edition. The editor, John Dutton, um, we struggled with this, you know, I can't write I, and but we need to respect Bascom's uh, originality. So there are several, there's 10 or 13 um, 
vignettes, and they're written in italic. And those are my original words. Um, I threaded my original thoughts through Bascom's, yet if the original thought was Bascom's, I only extended upon it and left it in the first person. And uh, it's, it seems to have worked quite well, and that was a suggestion of Don, uh, John Dutton, that we keep all the Bascom experiences in the first person and all of my personal experiences in italics. And some of the things are, are they're evident that anything happened that happened after the turn of the millennium is uh, my experience. You know, waves, they come in many kinds and sizes. And it's important to think of them as a continuous spectrum. Uh, some of them so small they can hardly be seen um, and unnoticed in a period of a lifetime. Uh, but some of these things are very observable in the short term. And the story about freediving in Tineto is about, um, it's under the, in the chapter, Tides and Seish. A Seish is basically, if you look at a bathtub sloshing back and forth, that movement is called a Seish. Call it sloshing, if you will. And, um, I have been freediving since I was 11, so it's been a while. And I, I dove through a cave in, in an island uh, off the Italian coastline. And I was, I think it's called the wave of no return. And I was, um, I almost ended my life by doing that. Um, so I... I noticed I was there with two friends, and and I um, noticed a fissure in. It's a small island; you can walk from one side to the other in you know five minutes, not even. And um, so I noticed this surging up and down of the water, and I said, "Oh, look at this! You know, there's, it's obviously open to the other side. It's surging back and forth." And I thought, "Well, you know." Okay, so I put on my mask and fins, went in there, and I looked down, and I swam down and came back and swam down a couple of times, keep going further and deeper each time. It's a cave, and it's sort of horizontal. went from vertical into horizontal. And, um, and there was a sandy beach at the bottom. It's weird it was because it was sloshing back and forth. It was sashing back and forth with the wave movements. And so I kept diving further and further. I came back to my buddies, and I said, you know, don't follow me, because of this next dive I think I'm going to go through. And um, I did, but it was, uh, it's, was pretty edgy. I got way deeper than I had anticipated, over 60 feet deep. That's six stories deep. And when I thought I was exiting the cave, I was not. Although I could see blue water in front of me, and I thought all I had to do is turn the corner and go straight up. I was completely wrong because there was a cave ceiling, if you will, at a 45-degree angle. And I was already very, very close to what I thought was shallow water blackout. It's going to black out. Um, but there was no way I was going to return. And uh, I made it to the top. And uh, I made it back to the surface and met up with my buddies. But it was uh, way over two minutes in my dive time which was uh, not a friendly experience when you have to withstand the surging back and forth in the cave. But it's, you know, just an adventure. And it lets one know that Seish, you know, it's around regardless of whether or not you want it to be there. It's going to be there. And waves are all over. So that little vignette of um, wave of no return is just an example of how ubiquitous waves are. They're everywhere you look. And... The, the other part of that is, in your story, you sort of suggest that you were hanging on for dear life to not be swept back and forth by the wave It was as it was trying to push you back in. And the idea that, you know, that the same force on boats is going to be an amazing thing for them to be able to stay at, at, at dock, to stay tied up, and yet accommodate all that movement. You refer to the, the center of the cave where it narrowed. And because there's a large opening on one side, 
when it narrowed down, the speed went up in this narrowing. This is a massive wave on the open to the Ligurian Sea on one side, and would force force up. The water would go up five feet on one side. And imagine if you have five feet of water going through a little tube, and you're in this tube. <laughs> so you've got five feet of water trying to push through it. And you're, so I'm hanging on to this thing, hang on to the rocks at the bottom, and the surge is going against me, coming from deep water. And then I realized, okay, now it's going the opposite way. I'm too far in now to swim back against this surge. So the only thing I can do is continue. So I was grabbing onto the bottom of the, the side of the, the cave where it narrowed, which was this high speed sloshing back and forth that was being forced by the waves. And it was completely unexpected. I just thought, okay, I'm just going to go down. It's going to open up. It's going to be a cakewalk. And, and little did I know that the, the amount of water moving was exactly the same outside as inside the cave, only the speed went way up because the, it's like restricting a hose. You know, When the water comes out of a hose uh, and there's nothing on the end of the hose, it doesn't come out very fast, but put your thumb over it and restrict the flow. It goes much faster. I was basically in the middle of a hose. But you came through, you made it out, and your friends were delighted to see you. Or they were just there. Of course, Kim made it out. That's what Kim does. Well, I don't know. I don't know about that. <laughs> I don't even know if they were delighted to see me. Good. <laughs> That's what we would hope. <laughs> yeah. Well, go figure, right? But um, so I'm wondering, it, since so much of the story also has Bascom's recollections and, and narratives and stories of different things, is there one story in there that you wish you had been part of that he did? That as you read through it and have gone through it so many times, you go, oh, that that would just be the experience I would have loved to have been part of, or that that discovery is something I wish I could have enjoyed. Yeah, <laughs> it would have been terrifying. I think uh, Walter Monk and uh, Willard Bascom and many others were terrified during the nuclear explosions. The uh, first uh, hydrogen bomb that was exploded in the South Pacific in the early 50s. Mm -hmm. And they were standing, basically they were standing on a little buoy and this bomb that had never been exploded before with only calculated explosive force was going off. And you're standing, you're on a float in the Pacific waiting for something that you think maybe the physicists have sort of figured out but maybe they haven't and you're <laughs> and that would have been, and then the gigantic mushroom cloud went up and um both uh, i knew walter monk quite well too um both walter monk and willard bascom and i've talked to other, a few other people that were at that explosion i've asked them what in your lifetime has been an impressive experience and independently they have all said that explosion, that very first hydrogen bomb going off. And it, an immense amount of energy being released. It did create a small tsunami. Uh, deep water tsunamis are not any problem whatsoever. The amplitude, the heights are negligible. But it, when it reaches the coastline, that, that would have been a pretty hairy experience. Um, and, and I don't think that's going to, well, I hope it never happens again, that's for sure. Yeah, let's hope so. That's one. I mean, surveying, uh, riding a duck, um, those amphibious vehicles, uh, that would have been lots of fun. I don't know if I would have liked to have done it uh, off the coast of Astoria uh, in northern um, northern coast of the U.S. in Oregon, where they had routine breakers of 20 feet, you know, for those of people meters that's like six meters of of wave height as the significant wave height and they were going through that all day long and Bascom tells a story early on that he had never really seen the Pacific he grew up on the East Coast and he got a job that was offered to him by John Isaacs and John Isaacs hires him on the spot there's a bunch of stuff talking about that but anyway so Bascom goes out in these amphibious vehicles and he just thought it was normal. 
But when they got in one day, the Coast Guard comes up to him and says, you know, if you get in trouble oh, out there, we're not going to get no. you. We're not going to come to your assistance. The waves are too large. We don't even go out in that stuff. Things were different then. I think if you want to be on a duck now, you can go down to New Orleans. And I think they use them as little tour boats to take you around some of the bayous. Yeah. So there's a but. little a funny, this is my own um, um, original thought that Anitra Bascom, Willard Bascom's daughter, was named Anitra, which is a relatively unusual first name. And so Willard used ducks, which is spelled D-U-K-W, which is an acronym, won't go into it. However, when Willard was using ducks, he was also became a father for the first time. And he liked the Peter Gint suite and a piece of music. And there's Anitra's dance. Well, Anitra in Italian means duck. Now, I don't know if Anitra didn't like that story, but she said it could be possible. Unfortunately, she's no longer with us, but I think Willard Bascom named his daughter after the duck, but that's my own personal opinion. I think we would have let her have the last say in this, and unfortunately, she she can't do that. But. Yes, unfortunately, she passed away uh, the latter part of 2021. Dear friends, I've been... Friends, now, I've known four Bascom generations. So I knew Willard, I knew Anitra, the daughter, and I know the, the Anitra's two kids, uh, Sarah and Rodney. They're adults now, and I also know their children. So <laughs> I, I'm a long-term, multi-generational Bascom fan. There are many people who can say that in a different version that both their parents, they, and their children are fans of his books. So it goes both ways as Bascom fans and multi-generational components. And it's nice that you're now part of that multi-generational story of Waves and Beaches. I was going to say, you, do you have a favorite passage in the book that you'd want to read? And I have one favorite sentence that I will share with you first. It's when you're talking about being lost in the fog, when you were um, scuba snorkeling, you must have been scuba diving, diving in, in the kelp forests in Northern California. Free diving, breath hold. And you end it by saying that you've been adrift because you couldn't see where you were with the fog and you couldn't have anything to relate to. So you didn't know what direction you were heading even. And you finish by saying, a point of reference is good in a chaotic world. And I just thought, amen to that. That is definitely what we need in so many places, but certainly in water because... Well, I certainly had a multitude of meanings when I wrote those words. Um, so <laughs> definitely. any any listeners can certainly apply their own uh, significance to those words beyond beyond diving in the kelp. But do you have a favorite quote from your book? Well, um, so I mean... In, in the big picture, um, I'll have to say that the, the aspect that it's a flow of energy that Waves and Beaches talks about because the, you know, the sun creates the, you know, the energy that comes from the sun, heats the atmosphere, and it creates the temperature differences that create the winds that create the waves. And this book is about the waves. And the, those waves then get rid of their energy on the shoreline, you know, on the face of the beach. And so it's a, it's a continuum of energy. And the portion that, that of the book that I really like, and I hope the reader has an appreciation that really the book is about the flow of energy. And not in this esoteric kind of thing. It's just follow the energy. It's like, I think it was Deep Throat said, um, you know, the, the Watergate scandal, follow the money. Well, just follow the energy. And the quote that, what I wrote in the third edition, wave and beach processes only exist with the flow of energy. And today, humans are influencing 
Earth's energy flows and climate, its seasons, storms, and winds, its sediments and sea level. We have become part of the spectrum. Yep. We are right in there. So with those words, I'm trying to let the reader understand that what we do influences nature, which in turn influences us in things like, you know, Sandy and Katrina and and Galveston. And of course, we're talking about mainly North American things. There are more things happening beyond our shores. The book certainly has a much more international reach. There are things covered on every continent, Antarctica, you know, Asia, Australia. So having an understanding that what we do is contributing to the energy flow and into that spectrum of energy flows. Some things happen really fast and some things happen really slowly. And sea level rise is something that happens very slowly. Uh, legislation and electing officials happen really slowly. But if we put our energy into the right directions, we can have significant change and we can certainly influence the positive and negative aspects of our own existence. That's a, a great way to end the discussion on your book. It certainly is. Um, it's true. So there's nothing more I could say to that. I can, though, get a little bit more into Kim McCoy. So what books led you to your, were there any books that led you to your life in the ocean, around the ocean, thinking about the ocean? I can't, I've been asked uh, a question, the question, when did you first get involved with the sea? And I answered, well, I cannot remember when I first experienced the sea. Um, I went across the Pacific by ship uh, before I turned one. I came back when I was about four. Uh, I crossed the Atlantic by ship. I came back. I mean, I was basically, by the time I was nine years old, I had crossed the Atlantic and the Pacific each twice. I'd been across the Mediterranean. And my first experiences close to the sea that I can remember were in Japan. And then much more involved when I lived on the island nation of Malta in the central Mediterranean. And my life has been surrounded with the ocean. Well, I started body surfing when I was about nine, and free diving when I was 11, and tank diving and scuba diving when I was 13, and sailing when I was 13. And it just, you know, I've sailed across the Atlantic on a sailboat, uh, been to all the continents, been to six of the seven continents by sea. So I've spent decades in educational systems in Europe and the U.S. So there, it's sort of like, when did you first feel you should walk out the door or something? You know, it's, um, it's something that's really innate to my being. I live not too far from, this, from the sea, and there is certainly not a day where I am involved in some aspect of, I'll call it the coastal life, and I've been immersed in it, and I was really lucky to have met Willard Bascom when he was, he had accomplished most of the things he wanted in his life. I was very firmly established in my own oceanographic career, and he had nothing to prove, and I had everything to learn still. And he took me under his wing, and sort of like father to son, and I talk about it in the preface to the third edition. And mm -hmm. after he got the rights to Waves and Beaches back from Doubleday, he would ask me to read different things. He'd ask me how they measure this now and then. And one day he handed me the second edition of Waves and Beaches and commanded, read this and tell me what it needs. And that was, mm. that was the spark that changed me yeah. from being a student to his collaborator. And that was sort of a continuum, really, from the time I was nine all the way up till... 2000, when I became his collaborator. And unfortunately, he passed away shortly thereafter. 
It's his last homework assignment, and it's complete. Yes, I think we've all had some of those assignments that we've we've done first out of love and then out of recognition that they need to be done. And this was one that needed to be done. So thank you for having put in your time and energy, knowledge and stories to make it as as interesting as the other two editions and as current and up-to-date as um, it possibly could be. It's a great read and great photographs too. Well, thank you very much, Leslie. I still get enjoyment out of looking at it, believe it or not. <laughs> oh, good. That's a, it was a, a, a pleasure to have been able to uh, complete it. I learned a lot too. And is it mostly available by, by um, uh, are there many bookstores that have it on in sale or do they sell it at the Patagonia stores? How can people find your book? It's available at some of the private bookstores. You can get it on Amazon. You can get it through the Patagonia bookstore. The distribution of it, you know, Patagonia is an independent book publisher, so um, it's, and it doesn't publish a whole bunch of books. It was the right company to get the environmental message out. If you like Waves and Beaches, make sure that your local bookstore, independent bookstore has it. Um, many, there's one bookstore in Northern California that they said they've sold over 300 copies of it. So it is out there. Um, I'm not privy to that information directly, so that's in the hands of the publisher. Um, if you want a copy, um, ask Patagonia to send you one or go onto Amazon, or request it through your bookstore. Support your local bookstore. That's a good way to go. Definitely. Always a great way to get books. So thank you so much, Kim. It's been wonderful talking with you. And also, for those of you who have been listening to this podcast today, thank you so much for, for staying with us. I think this time with Kim has been both educational and inspiring. And you know, maybe you're going to become a free diver. Or maybe you're going to learn other things about the coast and take on and, and, and find ways to enjoy it that either he has or he hasn't thought of yet and really become a, also an observer and a, a, a chronicler of coastal and beach activities. And I hope it encourages you to look differently at waves and beaches. And till next time, enjoy the coast and your views of the shore. And most importantly for all the listeners, go and see. Just go out and observe. You'll be impressed with what you see. Music